Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not A Genre, the interview edition. This is the 14th edition of my interview mini-series here. We did 12 last season, season three, and this is the second one here in season four, and it's a big one because it's a returning guest, and it's someone that I have asked to bring people into the fold so that you can be more a part of this. And many of you sent in questions I'm very excited about. Uh, this will be a Q&A follow-up to the two-part interview we had last season. And of course, if you sent in the question, you already know that my guest today is my father, Nicky DiMatteo. How you doing? How you doing, buddy? Good to see you. I'm all right, you know. <laughs> Recovering. Uh, many, many of uh, my podcast viewers and listeners know that we had a flood. So uh, this is the nice part of the basement at the moment. <laughs> I've kind of kept it intact. Uh, anything out there past the camera, it's anybody's guess right now. <laughs> Work in progress, though. Everything's going to be OK. Um, but that's kind of the way things have been have been lately. So uh, well, you look you look rather composed and uh considering all you've been through you guys not bad not bad you know we still have a home and the home is still nice so and everybody's okay so that's you know that's the good stuff Amen. uh so i guess i i briefed uh well i briefed a lot of people on this i kind of talked about it in my posts and in uh, previous podcasts and i talked to you about it and just kind of give a rundown of what we're going to do today which is that last time we spoke as hopefully many of you know, whether you're viewing this uh, on Patreon, and if you are, thank you for being a, a family member there. Uh, if you are viewing it much, much later on uh, YouTube, uh, if I decide to do that, then it's wonderful that you have subscribed to youtube.com slash Nick DiMatteo, or again, patreon.com slash music is not a genre, or you may be listening to this on one of the podcast services, and that is done through anchor.fm slash music is not a genre another way that you can support this podcast and and everyone involved uh anchor allows you to donate any amount uh to put towards the production of all of this and if you know patreon you kind of know what the story of that is it's a monthly membership and it's uh it's something i do uh with other artists and i really enjoy getting that email every week or or every month or whatever it might be when they release something new that said uh, let me get back to wherever I was, which is that we did a two-part interview last season, and it was two parts because we had so much to talk about. And, and I realized upon wrapping that interview that it could have been even longer, but whatever. We didn't, I didn't, I, you know, a lot of things to prepare and a lot of things come up while you're talking. 
So you out there, just so you know, uh, today will be a massive Q and A. Many of these questions are mine. Some of them are uh, from other people out there in the world, and I will name them one by one. Uh, Most of them are real. And uh, (laughs) others might pop up in the course of our discussion. Uh, We're going to try to keep this to an hour, but I make no promises. Um, So is there anything you want to say as an intro, or do you want to just jump right in? No, I'm I'm ready to jump in. Okay. Your intro was really quite good, and as it always is. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I Now, I did not fully organize these questions. I did some organization. It's not necessarily in any particular order. I, I try to create some flow. Uh, but I'm going to start off with one um, that has been sent in by a, another interview subject from last season. His name is Jim Costelli. And he actually had a few questions, which I've kind of peppered through here uh, as, as they uh, seem appropriate. And this seems like the right one to start with. And I'm going to be reading it here. Since you, so this is from Jim to you. Since you started singing so young, how did you deal with your voice changing? If not just the material you sang in the key, but from a professional point of view. My voice teacher was Marie Whartonby. I started with her probably when I was about seven. And uh, by the time we got to the voice change, she coached me through it. She made sure that I didn't do anything that might hurt the voice through the change. One of the things she and my manager friend Tony said was don't sing rock and roll. Oh, wow. Uh, In some ways that was... uh, Good advice in terms of the technicality of, of the maybe screaming rock and roll with a voice changing. Um, in other ways, it wasn't. Over the years performing, I had to learn how not to sing correctly. You don't sing rock and roll uh, with with the trained voice, with the diction and the breathing. It's a folk. It's a folk music rock and roll. It's from the people. People don't take voice lessons to. And then Mrs. Whartonby, God bless her, emphasized two things, diction and projection. Mm-hmm. So people have to understand what you're saying and they have to hear what you're, you're singing. So that was her, that was her, her em- emphasis. And it worked to that degree. And it took me a while again to unlearn things, not unlearn, but not use the, the big voice all the time. And that, that, uh, I guess, I hope that's the good answer, Jim. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, did you feel like um, those kind of, I mean, I think I, I know those techniques can apply to anything if you, you know, if you want to use them. But do you feel like when I hear uh, diction, of course, that's that kind of proper pronunciation and, and, and yeah, bringing it out so that people can understand what you're singing projection yes but what's interesting to me there is projection is more important let's say if you're doing stage singing mm-hmm. than if you are caressing a microphone when you may need to project at some point but you also have that more intimate voice too yeah well i've also heard people on a microphone who whose diction isn't quite what it should be the pronunciation enunciation isn't quite what it should be i think to keep that uh, 
understanding to keep that message flowing. You know, one of the things when I sing in I cantor in church, for example, and I I, I sing the uh, the psalm. Uh, my doctor Kiefer, who's the the music director from the church, said he loves the way I sing the psalms. I he said I can understand every word, and my answer to that was well, the message is the message, and right. you shouldn't hide the message with trying to sound so wonderful with your voice. And it should be the importance of the words themselves. So they need to be understood. That's one of the ways I can uh, you know, explain that business. You know, with singing, I went through a lot of, I went through that whole period of it. The sound of my voice is so important. And, you know, okay, the Lord gave me a voice and I need to, uh-uh. you know, I, I, I was working a place in Wildwood called the Ramada Inn back in 77, the summer of 77. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had just learned Kenny Rogers' song, Lucille. And uh, I started performing it. And during a, a break, I, I didn't take that many breaks, but the bartender said, Nikki, you're singing this with your voice. I mean, it's it's a country tune, you know. And darn if he wasn't right, you know. So I started acting the song and I became the character in the song. You know, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with four hungry kids and a crop in the field, whatever. I've forgotten most of it by now. But that's that's it. The message is the message. And, you know, you're a writer, so you understand. You well, want your words words to be understood. Well, there's that, yes. And I think that the other thing that, that you're saying or that I you know, believe is important is the emotion of what you're singing. And it's often, it, 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 I have found it to be true that let's say it's, um, you know, less experienced singers or singers who are, are maybe still trying to find that uh, way of expressing passion, uh, you know, more freely or something, tend to spend a lot of time and effort emphasizing the technique often at the expense of the emotion. And it's one of the reasons why I find most modern versions of opera very difficult to listen to. It, it's, there are very few, even top-notch singers who can capture what the emotional intent was uh, that that writer put forth. And we forget, total side note, that opera was just popular music when it came out. You know, it was like musicals of the day and it was not written to be this keep it away from the people and it's proper and all of that stuff. It was written to just tear your heart out. And those are the, you know, yes, there may be a time here or there where you might sacrifice a little pinch of technique somewhere. But if it's in the service of the emotion and the intent of the song, which I think is part of the message, then you're doing the right thing. That's exactly right sacrifice the technique to get the message across to get the the feel across the emotion um that that's really kind of hard to pinpoint i i let the spirit take over when i sing when i perform the the spirit of the song itself and what's coming through the the message of the song and i i keep turning to the word acting mm. you know so the old stanislavski you know, he said that you could sum up Stanislavski's method in two words. What if? What yeah. if? Yeah. 
okay, what if I were in this particular circumstance that the song is depicting? But I, I don't do that with any technical, you know, kind of a goal. I just do it. You know, yeah. I just sing the song. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. Yeah. And, see. You know that you know that song, right? I do. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've yeah. sung that before. And yeah. you know what the original title of the song is? I uh, in other words. In other words. Yeah. I I had the pleasure of meeting the writer of that song, Bart Howard. I met him in New York in 1958. And uh, he was introduced, I was introduced by Jimmy Lyons, one of the great piano players of the era, who played at the Blue Angel in New York. And it was Bart Howard who told me that he was talked into changing the title to the one line that is said only once in the song, Fly Me to the Moon. And that's what people know that song by. I don't know how we got into that. We got sidetracked from the, from the message. I'm having a problem with the 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 tangents just piling up in my head. So I, you know, I totally understand. I will say though, what you, you have to keep me that, on point. Yeah, when you told me that story before, I found that it wasn't that unusual because, first of all, you know that song. You know that's such a great line. It's also the first line of the song, and there's a tra- there's a tradition in poetry that often when a poem is not named, the name it's given is the first line of the song. Yeah, so it kind of works out, you know, maybe they thought of that or maybe they just like, that's catchier, you know, it brings you in more. It makes sense. But I I can... Shakespeare's, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Exactly, that's a perfect example. That's the first line. Yes, yes. So I think that, you know, uh, there were several other things that popped into my head when you were talking about uh, the voice technique, but just to kind of put a little button on it. So we, you know, we make sure we answered uh, Jim's question. It, it sounds like that knowing that working with someone that adept at teaching the proper technique for using a voice made it easier to transition from the, the boy soprano into the, the male baritone. And uh, that there wasn't much of a, of a difficulty, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but do you think that that also, even though you had to choose not to do certain techniques to become more of a rock and pop singer, do you feel like having that technique as a bass made it easier for you to sing all of those other songs too? Well, now in retrospect, of course, that, that foundation gave me the, the ability to sing the other songs and to sing them with, and I use the one word, credibility, you know, and I, I could sing rock and roll with credibility. And if I have to, I become Tevye. Mm. If I were a rich man, you know, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, that foundation, no question about it, really helped. That that makes sense. I, I heard stories and I, the one that keeps popping into my head is of Roger Daltrey of, uh, I don't think he really studied anything, but he's got an amazing voice and he, you know, helped catapult the who to all the fame that they've had. But at a certain point, and I believe it was in the eighties, he had a lot of trouble, uh, vocally. Vocal trouble. Yeah. And there was a point at which, uh, and it might've been the eighties. It might've been the nineties where critics were like, I think he's lost it, oh, but he subsequently regained it. And I believe it's because he credited 
he he worked with somebody to, to use more proper technique. And I find, and I've found this in my past, and I feel much better about it now, that when you aren't singing that often, you can do whatever you want with your voice. And you'll probably make it to the end. But if you're doing a tour or several hours a night, several nights a week, if you're if your technique isn't if you're not producing the sound in a way that that is, you know, good for your body, you won't I, last. You I, won't last. Yep. You're going to hurt your voice, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the diaphragm is that's that secret. That right. The breathing. Right. So she, yeah. Mrs. Wharton, breathing and diction. Yeah. Breathing and diction. I, uh, many years ago, 1980, I worked a place in North Philadelphia called the Bent Elbow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a five night a week gig, and every night was like New Year's Eve. That's mm. the intensity. I Jeez. after the gig, it was about a six month gig. My voice was not doing too well. For one full year, I had to stay away from Impossible Dream, even Mac the Knife. Mm. And until it, you know, got better. But yeah, every night was like New Year's Eve, as I said, and the intensity was so incredible. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what you, yeah, you had to rely on that. Yeah. yeah, but I hope, Jim, that we've answered your question enough. I think with Jim through, through the rock and roll. I think what Jim is thinking right now is there was there was another part to that question and i have several more questions and are you ever going to get to them and the answer is yes we will but not right now because uh i i you know i i'm working on a plan so as much as i would love to keep talking about this uh let's segue to something this is something that came up in my mind when we were talking because i have kind of a patchwork picture of a lot of your history musically and and otherwise and, you know, there, I can't ask all of the questions I would love to ask. Some of them I haven't even, you know, thought of yet. But one that did pop up uh, just randomly was you've told me so often that you uh, started performing as a child and you performed, you know, I guess live. And then, you you know, you recorded some things, but you were performed on the TV shows and all of that. And then you you did tours and stand up and 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 everything what I guess I never quite knew was how how often did you perform like in a given week or month or year hmm. so when I was a kid I did a lot of church things that people would always call me to sing for funerals and weddings oh, yeah. when I was uh, in 1952 I was on a, a radio show in New York with Paul Whiteman now, I don't know if you're familiar with that name. He was yeah. one of the one of the great band leaders starting back in the twenties. One of the first singers to work with Paul Whiteman was Bing Crosby. Mm. And uh Paul Whiteman was was the man who suggested to George Gershwin that he should write something special for a special concert, a blues concert. Oh. And Gershwin wrote Rhapsody in Blue in like three weeks back in nineteen 19- 24 whiteman was was huge he also was a rather huge man as well but the, anyway yeah i was on his show in 1951 i started on a, a local television show called the horn and heart our children's hour and in five years on that show and i was a, kind of like a local celebrity you know wow. oh yeah i 
I did USO work back starting around 1948. That was so, pre, pre-Korean War, right? Yes, it was. So this was all in the States, the USO work? It was. It was, in, it was at, mostly at Fort Dix, New Jersey, which oh, is sure. now McGuire Dix Lakehurst. It's a, com, uh, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But they would, we belong, belong to a place called the St. Martha's House at 7th and Snyder in South Philly. It was like a community house where uh, gathering there was uh, with a lot of entertainers. And once in a while, Fort Dix would send an army truck to St. Martha's House to pick us up. Mm-hmm. take us to to do a to do a show uh, yeah i remember wow being, i remember being surprised by the fact you walk into the bathroom there are no stalls ah no, yeah no stalls it's just toilets sitting there i mean that, <laughs> that was crazy you know but anyway that's that's it that's army life <laughs> but yeah uso shows church uh perform the performances really started coming together and, and a lot of um, back i guess in 19 19- 70 when i started playing piano on a full-time basis well that's a question i want to get to in a second before we get to get there you you then you then kind of transitioned to maybe like you did you you did like record hops or record promo things and then yeah that wasn't until 57 yeah then you did tours too right and and how long were those tours well the one major tour with uh, was uh 1960 from Chicago. It was a bus tour where you fly to Chicago and you do 31 nighters on a bus. Wow. Uh, And I found out later that that was the exact same tour, same itinerary that a year before Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, Deanna the Belmonts, and so forth. That was the exact same tour they took. Yeah, yeah. I remember you mentioned that. We had to go from Clear Lake, Iowa to uh, Fargo, North Dakota. It was about 400 miles. And uh, Buddy Holly could afford, could afford to rent a plane. Yes, I know. Yeah, we, we mentioned that before. Um, the, the, the 31-nighters, how many days was that? It was, it was, I guess it was close to 32 or 3. Wow. We traveled oh. and we did a show. Then we get on the bus and go to the next place and do another show. And uh, Johnny and the Hurricanes was the, the band that was oh, the, yeah. star, the star and the backup band. They backed Oh, up. nice. There was a oh, whole wow. bunch of singers. Rod Lauren was on that tour. Uh, Carl Dobkins Jr., Harold Dorman, standing on the mountain looking down on the city. Harold mm-hmm. Dorman, really nice guy. But yeah, that was basically the only tour that I did. Uh, from that point of view, I, I did eventually go to South America for seven weeks uh, back in '65. Uh, that was the other one. Okay, '65. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Okay. I spent three weeks in Lima, Peru, and four weeks in Buenos Aires. Yeah. And that was an interesting tour as well. But the the steady singing, you know, week to week paycheck singing didn't start until around '70. And so. When you get when you get to that, this this I'm kind of uh, I'm throwing in a question of mine with the question of Jim's, because I think they're kind of related. Good. And my my question, I'm going to say them both. My question uh, is, what was it like to transition from stand up to sit down? Was it tough? Were there were there issues beyond 
you know, the, the having to, we've talked about you having to support yourself as a piano player and, and all of that, were there other issues? And Jim's question, I think related to that is when, and this is how he puts it, when you grew out of the quote, teen idol age, when fans can lose interest with an artist who's maturing, how did you handle that? LaSalle College. I matriculated. Wait, you like this word? Matriculated. Yeah, it's a dirty word. It, well, uh, if I if I've said that word in South Philly, they'd beat the hell out of me. <laughs> in nineteen in September sixty one, at the suggestion of a, a a man who was director on the Children's Hour, Merrill Brockway. Okay. So once you go to college, my record my record uh, career had gone into kind of a slump in sixty one. <laughs> no, in sixty because I I went I went to the director at LaSalle. Brother Robert, I said, I got to get in. He said, what, what do you mean? You have, you have, you have to go through it. He, he, he slowed me down a bit. And I started, I had finally got in September of 61 was my first, my freshman year at LaSalle. And uh, it, it grounded me a lot. And I loved, I loved the Christian brothers and I loved LaSalle. I spent five years there because I wanted mm -hmm. to keep my grade point average higher. I was still working. I was working stand up at in clubs especially skiolas in uh, north philly okay a, a record that i had made was getting local airplay i have but one heart wow. and uh it brought attention to me and uh, eddie suez the agent booked me into uh skiolas and I, as i said i wanted to keep my my grade point average higher and so so i took five years instead of four years someone's uh coaching you i see yeah, there's, there's a little beautiful blonde Hungarian to my left. Ah. He asked how your fans lose interest. How'd you keep on your fan base? You asked that? Fans lose interest? Well, that's what Jim asked. He did he, you know, so I know there was a transition for you where oh, like sure. you had said, like you there was a slump, and then at certain at a certain point you you made the decision to transition to to supporting yourself. <laughs> and and I guess what Jim wants to know is, was there, and I'll, I'm going to rephrase it, uh, you know, was there a place, a point, how did it feel, or did it, did you feel this, that there were fans you had that had lost interest in you, or did they transition with you to the, to the sit-down realm locally? Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I, I don't remember fans from my stand-up uh, era. The fans that I do remember, God bless them, happened after I started, I sat down. The mm. first time I sat down to play was uh, 1961, the summer of 61, before I went to LaSalle. I wanted to make some money. Oh, wow. To help help play, pay for LaSalle. Um, LaSalle in those days was $800 a year. <laughs> it might give you some idea. I think huh. right now, somewhere up around thirty or 40000 I don't know. At least. But, yeah, yeah, 80000 I, I Really, I worked summer uh, that summer at, at, a, at a bar called the, the Center Bar in, in Atlantic City. And uh, in fact, it was the same bar that a, a few months before Nina Simone had worked. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, the, the transition from standing happened kind of gradually to sitting. That that was this. Then after that, I just did club what we call club dates. You're an agent. You call me. You need a show at, uh, say, the Breakers Hotel in Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. You call a singer. You call a comic. And between the two of us, we could do maybe a, a, a two-hour show for the for the clientele. Go ahead. Nice. That the fans only came 
when I started working steadily, and that was the summer of 1970. Yeah. You weren't quite two years old yet, and we were in Atlantic City, and uh, I, was, I was hired by Joey Falco to play a, his club called Pal Joey's, and he hired a band, too, to back me up. And about a month into the gig, he fired the band. And right. uh, oops, and Julie and I and you were out there. I had rented a place. I bought. I, I borrowed money from my mom to buy equipment, the custom equipment. Yeah. And yeah. So she, your your mom said, "Why don't you play the piano? Tell Joey you played it." Are you kidding? I'm not a piano player. I'm a singer. I'm not gonna stoop to playing the piano and singing. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah, that felt. You felt that. You felt like you were taking I, step down. No question about it. So. Yeah. I went to Joey and said, look, Joey, I, I can play the piano. I said, okay, go ahead. Joey was a cool guy. He used to be a fighter. And uh, I, I did that. And one thing led to another. As I'm playing and singing, two guys from Philadelphia Magazine, Gaten Fonzie and Bernie McCormick, came in to do a... They were doing a complete workup of Atlantic City itself, bust-out bars and stuff. Yeah. They came in to, to see me. And Gaten had done something on me when I was on the Arthur Godfrey show in 57. He wrote this, he and Bernie wrote this wonderful thing about me in this article. Right. Well, people from Philadelphia, they kept, they started coming into pal Joey's and that was the summer of 70. Ever since then, I made my living playing the piano and singing. Fans one by one. Now, and so, fans one by one. so, and so I think that we're taking for granted that people know what that means. And in my experience, I've seen uh, enough solo, you know, performers to know that everyone kind of has a different spin on it. And with you, my, where I think that you always stood out for me was that, like you said, you rarely took a break. Uh, and you you eventually would bring quite a few other people up to sing with you or play an instrument or something like that. And that your and this I don't know how it compares to others, but your night was several hours long every night, several nights a week. And you would be the person to bring in the equipment, to set it up, to sound check, to work with whoever was there, to get the place you know ready if it wasn't. And then do your entire show and then and then break it down. And while you were breaking down, you were talking to fans and doing all this other stuff too. Well, Does that sound like a good description or well, sort of remember in those days I could work one room five nights a week when my agent, uh, nice guy, Jerry, Jerry Glasgow had been my agent. He's he eventually my agent for 18 years, but he sent me to uh, the William Penn Inn in Lower Gwynedd up in, in Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, I wound up staying there for two years. Now imagine that. Two years in one room, five nights a week. There's, I didn't have to break down. I set the equipment up. And the only time I put it away was when, when I took my three-week vacation. Vacation, yeah. Twice, twice a year, I take three weeks off and just put the equipment away. But Five nights a week. That's one of the lamentable things about today. When I think of you, for example, how do you you don't how do you have time to build a fan base? We're working five nights a week, technically five sets a night, which turned into like you know a lot a lot fewer sets but longer. Mm-hmm. You you get a chance to, to to what we call woodshed 
to build fans, a fanship, a fan base, one fan at a time. Mm-hmm. People come in, they mm-hmm. like you, they bring other people in and so forth and so forth. And I spent almost 15 years in Montgomery County, starting with the William Penn and bless, you know, Peter Friedrich was uh, the owner of the William Penn. And I remember one time I got food poisoning and I was off two nights. Peter paid me for those two nights. Oh, that's unheard of. Unheard of. Unheard of. And uh, love the guy, you know, there've been uh, other stories, but that's, that's the thing. You need that one place where you can work and concentrate on your your singing, your playing, and building that fanship, that base, one fan at a time. And it's, I love them all, you know. That was my first. And, and what happened was, I was working the William Penn Inn, and a wonderful singer-piano player named Hal Martin was working the Bluebell Inn. Yes. And Hal was, uh, I guess, my major competition back then. So <laughs> that's when I said to myself, I'm not going to give people a chance to leave me and go to Seattle because I I stopped taking breaks. Oh, wow. So I'd work like a full night, you know, five hour night. Yeah. Never, never leaving this, you know, I wasn't drinking beer or anything. I was drinking Remy, sipping yeah. it. Sipping it. Yeah. Well, you have to sip Remy, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't have but to. But you, yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. That's, why, that's why I stopped taking breaks. I think I've told how this story Hal's since moved to Arizona with with Millie, his wife. But that's why I stopped taking breaks. And that sort of turned me into a kind of a semi-legend in the in the area where people, this guy doesn't take breaks. Tommy Reagan, oh, yeah. a, a, good fan, a good fan of mine, Tommy Reagan, who, who loved to sing with me. He's gone now, rest his soul. But he said he would bring people in and say, look, just, just stay for one set. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And then we... And the set never ended. <laughs> and then, right, one five-hour set. That's yeah, great. right. Uh, so let's. Uh, well, this is somewhat of a segue into the next section. This is related to what we're talking about now, and it's going to move into where I want to get to. Another question uh, from Jim Castelli, and this seems the question's a little bit all over the place in terms of eras for you, but I'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, how was the material you performed chosen? And I guess for that, he might mean uh, recordings and things. Then he says live performances were from the Great American Songbook. So he's, I guess, the, 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 you know, the way you perform in the clubs. Sure. But then, oh, I get it. But where did the originals come from? So I think in his case, what he mean originals, he would mean not your originals, but the, the, the stuff you sang as original material. Like, uh, you know, Tell the World About You or something like that. Well, those were records that um, I made starting in 57 and uh, just kept making records. Uh, Tell the World, as you happen to mention that song, was uh, was arranged by a guy named Walter Gates. Now, Walter Gates did all the arrangements pretty much for, for Bobby Rydell's uh, recordings. And uh, I did not choose those. They were chosen by the uh, A&R people. Artisan repertoire, got it of the specific uh, label or what have you. I didn't yeah. choose them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I started recording. I recorded an album in 1961, the summer of '61. Uh, I was 19 and uh, just of wonderful standards. And I really didn't choose all of those. Uh, Tony Mambo and Tony Luisi, who was 
a genius of an arranger, he and his brother, John, had a, a recording studio called Sound Plus. Hmm. They, they chose the recordings. Uh, in my live act, I rarely did anything original. Rarely. Right. So that's... When now, and this actually, Jim mentioned the name Tony Luisi, so I guess he had a little bit of a. Oh, he did really. Yeah, he must have had a clue as to who you worked with. Um, <clears throat> so you're saying then, for really, you know, all that period when you were recording all of this stuff, you other people chose the songs and you sang them, with I guess the exception of if there may be more exceptions, but I know there was a song called Lovey Dove. Well, I did write that. Which you wrote. Yeah, and that was, to me, unless I'm wrong, the only one from that whole era that you wrote and recorded. Yeah. Yeah, but that was, does that the only one you also that chose? I guess so. Yeah, well, yeah. I was, again, working with Tony Luisi and uh, Tony Lewis is also a stage name. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, he, he, he did the arranging on Lovey Dove. And now, did you have yeah. any... Did you actually have any control over choosing and you just said, uh, you know, I'm fine with what you guys choose? Or did you not really have any control over that? Oh, I did have control, but I did. I just ceded that control to people yeah. I trust, trusted. OK, and, uh, OK, Tony good. Luis, he was one of them, Tony Mambo yeah. with the songs. He was great American songbook type of guy. You know, Tony, he right. was in World War Two. So that's his era. And yeah, that and the, the stuff I did live. I did again concentrated on the songbook and and whatever was popular coming up. For example, somebody requested the Stevie Wonder song. Uh, no, Stevie Wonder from a movie. Uh, a part part time lover. Uh, uh, I just called to say I love you. Oh, that's the one. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and I learned that. And I would so learn. You, take, you would take some requests and things. Oh uh, no, question. Somebody if somebody. Uh, a wonderful fan, Frank Cannon, his wife Annie. They were they became wonderful fans. Frank again was from that uh, Sinatra era, and uh, he requested a specific old Sinatra song, and I I learned that for him. So you you build up an, a repertoire based on that quote unquote base of of great American songs and what people request along the way. And what I found interesting is I watched you or as I grew up and watched you develop and, and, and change in some ways is that, and we talked about this a little bit before, but you are not, you, you've never been a performer who said, I am a Michael Buble. Like, well, he, he, he only pretty much only does standards and, you know, and then that kind of vocal, you know, uh, performance and, and, and arrangement and all of that. Sure. You you pulled from everything. I mean, I think a lot of what I say is stuff that I got into, uh, especially in the from, let's say, the mid 70s to the early 80s was because I heard you do it first. So stuff from Saturday Night Fever does not it to me. Yes, that is part of the great American songbook, because that songbook is way bigger than people think it is. But it's not a it's not. A, a, a traditional standard no and so much of what you did wasn't that no I, I had i included things and i i wouldn't spend the time to learn it unless i, I loved it so uh you know well you can't tell by the way i use my walk i'm a woman's man no time to talk so yeah. you know i thought yeah. it was wonderful i mean with you know barry singing those 
but yeah, even the Stevie Wonder song, I just called to see I love you. Various things that I've learned over the years, and the, some of them I've forgotten, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I have, okay. I, have a, I have a couple of questions related to that. And uh, let, let me start with this one. I, you once told me that you had may at one point had memorized a couple thousand songs. Sure. And I would say the two the questions I have there would be what motivated you to learn that many and why did you feel you needed to have every single one of them memorized? Well, when I first started singing and playing, I used music. Okay. I used, I used sheet music mm-hmm. for, I would say, uh, 70 to about 74 or 5 using music. And then I realized uh, once I learned more and more songs without using music, yeah. that it was more important to just sing the song and play it and not have to look at music to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, that was an accumulative thing. It didn't just uh, I didn't just go out, go about and say, well, I'm going to I'm going to learn 2000 songs. You know, it just happened over the years, yeah. you know, with the, and it's it's one thing knowing a song, knowing how, the words, the melody. That's one thing. The other thing is to be able to play it, to accompany yourself. Mm-hmm. So what I, I tell singers today, if somebody says, I want to, I'd like to be a singer. Okay. Take piano lessons or guitar lessons or whatever, something where you can accompany yourself. And I say that as, as also as a very practical thing. And I've told uh, that there's no way I could have made a living over the many years, 50 or so, whatever, working clubs. If I did not know how to play the piano, if I did not accompany myself, yeah. it's yeah. that simple. It's the playing and the singing that caused that that caused it to be able to happen. Uh, and so, and so, you know, w- along with that, you would often talk about songs, and then we've talked about some things, and I don't want to need to repeat them. But like the way you would show connections to songs by chord progressions, etc. But one of the things that you would often do is talk about the history of a song or some interesting fact about it or ask everybody what year it came out or what movie was it featured in to to the point where it became not just trivia, but a little bit of an education for people listening. Why did you do that? When I first started playing and singing on a full-time basis, and again, that was 70, when I came back from the uh, shore in 71, I was booked into a piano bar in, in Philly called the 5100 Club. I said to myself, look, it's one thing saying, playing and singing a song. I want to connect with the audience as well in other ways. What's So I, I said, okay, you check the bottom of a sheet music and it tells you what year the song was written. And then somebody bought me a book about rock and roll and it had all kinds of wonderful trivia about the artist's about the songs they recorded when they became hits. And that that became a, a huge part of my, my shtick, as it were. To talk, as you just said, you know, the history of the song, who who did it, you know, who might have done, what movie, did it come from a movie or was it a play? I always say to people, most of the songs we know and love come from either movies or musicals. Uh, of course, that's not no longer completely true, but uh, but back then it was. Yeah, and to some degree, it's still the, the true in in a lot of ways. Um, so, well, that's yeah, and I I I've can I contend that part of the reason why my 
career is currently bifurcated into, you know, music performance and creation and all that stuff and podcasting is because I just took those two elements of you're doing a show, you're singing songs, you're making songs, you are talking about music and talking about songs. And I just separated them and just took them to the nth degree, you know, and, and that's probably an influence. Yeah. That's very that's, that's courageous, man. <laughs> well, it's it's something. Admire your courage. <laughs> uh, do, now, do you you've you said this before, and I'd love to know more about this because we've talked about this privately, but uh, I think it's worth other people hearing it. You did primarily covers, and you would throw sure. some originals in, uh, you know, and and that's and that's fine. But that goes for both your live and recorded careers. Was there a point? when you made that decision or was there a point midway where you thought you you might want to do originals but you were more comfortable with cover what made you gravitate uh, time and again to covers as opposed to originals it was safe okay it was very safe to do songs that people already knew and loved and my my idea was to make this connection with the audience and i knew i wasn't going to have that much uh influence if I just did originals, again, that's why I admire the course you took. And I realized how difficult it was. But to sing, a, a person walked in and, oh, yeah, right. And I sing their song. It was safe and it mm. worked, you know, covers. And I, again, lament the fact that you've got, you've got no place to call a steady gig. Right. Where you can hone your craft live with people and people who appreciate the kind of music that you do it's, it's things have changed so much not to mention the pandemic but even before the right pandemic. even before then yeah oh geez yeah you're lucky if you can work two nights in one room two nights in one room oh yeah i started working you know five six nights in one room yes for an extended period of time incredible yeah i yeah there there are a couple people that i'll be interviewing this season uh in particular, Leslie Goshko and Paul Leshen, and they are both uh, singer piano players who do primarily covers. Uh, they part of their act, I believe, or at least for Paul, uh, involves bringing people up to sing and and whatever. Uh, it, it you know there are other differences, etc. But I admire them because they have a they have steady gigs, but in their in their version or today's version of a steady gig is they play once a week for a couple of hours at a club. And that's amazing. It's admirable. And it, it's, an, a, you know, great for everybody involved, but it's not a living. So that is how things have changed. And, the, and, and even that, even their ability to do just the once a week is a very rare thing. Now, do you know whether or not they do that in just one club or do they, can they? Yes. It's in the one club. Yeah, it's okay. uh, Sid Gold's. Yeah, so oh, it's, cool. yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, and that's just the vibe of that club, and it's partly because it's rooted as as many of the clubs uh, in that general area are uh, in in the kind of the cabaret history of things in New York. So yeah. it lends itself Wait. towards people wanting that kind of a regularity yeah. and 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 inclusion and stuff like that. So that's yeah, that's the beauty yeah. of piano bars as well. Yeah, right. Right. People sit around the bar, they're that close to the performer, and that performer is that close to the people. Yeah. Here's what I got. Yeah. Want to come in? I, you want to come into my world? I'll, right. 
if you, if you want to, I can lead you into my world. You're creating a world. Yeah. 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 So, you know, towards, the, I guess this is the, ooh, I don't know, last question in this section is the 12, <laughs> this is the $12 question. And so I only have $12. So that's all it's costing. And, and it's from. Uh, I'll do it. Soon- nothing. Okay. Hey, Suzanne Schultz Mastroeni. Sorry if I mispronounced that. And here it comes. What were your favorite and least favorite songs that you sang or performed or recorded? (laughs) Takes me back to uh, 1971 when I was working the 5100 Club in Philadelphia on City Line Avenue, 51st and City Line, and uh, Tana Bar. And there's a guy who had a little bit too much to drink. And he said, what's your favorite song? And I said, I don't have one. Well, he said, what do you mean? You're a singer. You got, you know, all these songs, you got to have a favorite song someplace. And the very fact I said that I know and love so many songs, I can't call one my favorite. And as far as least favorites, you know, like I said, if I took the time to learn the song, I had to love it enough. Mm. So I, I, you know, I, that's that's the only. Was there ever was there other ever a song though that someone requested that you were compelled to fulfill that request, but you were like, yeah, it's not really my bag. Yeah, I just called to say I love you. Okay. All right. And I'm, I wasn't actually, I wasn't that crazy about this. Song. Once I learned it and started doing it, of course, I changed my opinion. But uh, I, I, that's the one I learned it, and I turned around, and I started loving the song. Uh, interesting thing, back in 65, I uh, came back from South America. Had a, I was a tour there. And I heard a song on the radio called Hang On Sloopy. Well, I just didn't like that song. Mm. Okay. Now I love it. I started hearing it more and more. I got into the groove of the blues. You know, bump, 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 bump. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's the only answer, I, Sue, I can give to that. Fair enough. Yeah. You see Sue and you know, God bless you. That was so great. Yeah. And, and mom and dad, Axel and Joyce, wonderful people. Oh, it's such a great whole family. Fa- yeah. Whole family. Yeah. When I know when I, when I ever think of anything like that, favorites, you know, least favorites, listen there in, and you can ask Catherine or anyone I talk to, if there's a song or an artist that just does not resonate with me, you will know about it. Like I can, I will be able to tell you like that is a person whose voice I just don't, get you know and it's not even that i think that they're subpar or you know i mean i have my complex opinions but i categorize so much that i can pull out something like that when it comes to favorites it's the same thing i have i can say well my favorite in this category or from this band you know uh and even that may change I, I, my running joke is this uh this is one of my top five favorite bands and my top five it is a rotating top five you know anything from my top <laughs> anything from my top 15 could end up in the top five if i feel like it does and i think that's with artists when you're talking about individual songs how can you possibly you know, and I think maybe what Su- Su- you know, Suzanne is getting at, and, and maybe not, maybe she wanted to know your favorite song. I know there are a lot of piano bar play, piano players, piano bar people who don't like doing Piano Man because they think it's cliche or something like that. Uh, no, or, yeah, and I, right. But you always did uh, such a great version. Uh, I saw a version recently on TV and I was like, that person is not connected to that song in any way, <laughs> you know, but um, 
but compared to the way you do it, that's a whole different, you know, it's a whole different thing. But maybe what she would want to know in terms of connecting is, were there certain artists or songwriters or people that you gravitated to that's, oh, I just love, I love their music more so, or I can, I can interpret that music in a way that's more personal to me. I guess, you know, Billy Joel, of course, is one of them. Uh, Elton John. I, mm. I used to do a lot of Elton John. Mm. Neil Diamond. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Beatles, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, but I'm talking about like single artists. Uh, That's great, though. No, you've done yeah. bands too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Vic Damone. You know. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Know That's perfect because that brings me to my next question, which was sent in by one Cheryl Lundgren, and uh, <laughs> it's I'm going to read the whole thing because I like the details she put in here. It's it's a it's got some length to it, but I think you'll like this. She says, when my mother and father-in-law were alive and our girls were still at home, we used to have Sunday dinners and holidays at our house. We barbecued a lot and we always had music playing, tons of food and wine. One of our favorites was a compilation of songs called Mob Hits. They did a, they did a series of those of these, but the first one was our favorite. Obviously, they weren't really mob songs, but they all had Italian singers, or at least we thought they were Italian. I was wondering if you've ever listened to them, and that was for me, but I know you have, and if any of the songs were really of Italian origin. There were artists like Dean Martin, Jerry Vale, Al Martino, Louis Prima, Julius La Rosa, and if the artists were really all Italian, were they added to that collection because they were used in movies about the mob. <laughs> Great Johnny question. Fon- Johnny Fontaine, Al Martino played and, that character in The Godfather. In The guy, yep. And, yeah. and it was supposed to, supposedly close to what Sinatra was, because he was right. going for a role in the movie, and we all know what role in what movie Frank Sinatra made his enormous comeback, and that was the role of Private Maggio, in the movie From Here to Eternity, 1953, mm. Sinatra won the uh, uh, Best Supporting Actor. And uh, yeah, Italian, as far as no, we know Sinatra's fully Italian. We know yeah. Dean Martin, whose real name is uh, Dino Crocetti. At least we know his father is Italian. <laughs> right. Al Martino, his real name was Al Cini, C-I-N-I, from South Philly. I did meet Mr. Martino. Uh, Jerry Vale. Uh, Italiano, Vital, Vitaliano. That's mm. yeah, and I, I guess because mob, quote unquote, you associate that with Italian names, and that's why they call them mob. It's you know Dean Martin's version of you'll hear it probably many times, kicking the head. You know, yeah, that's that's classic, classic, quote unquote, mob hit. Yes, we did. Yeah, you know that was uh yeah that's in an uh that that's in a movie that was just recently released called The Men really? of Newark. Yeah, oh, that, okay, that was yeah. one of the songs in there. Uh, you remember. I, happen I happened to be the one who was singing it. And so, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but but I one of, one of the interesting things, and I, I always thought it was just fascinating and kind of neat to me to discover how many of those um, singers with uh, ang- Anglo names were actually Italian. So that, so that was kind of neat. And like you said, Dean Martin and even Tony Bennett, we know he's, you know, everybody knows that now, but but growing up like us, his name is Tony Bennett, you know, but it's Anthony Benedetto, right? And 
And, uh, and I had mentioned to Cheryl when I saw this question that my opinion about it being mob-related was that, that many people associate Italians with the mob and that subsequently a lot of these songs were used in mob movies, sure. but initially they were just singles on the charts. Yeah. No. Jimmy Roselli, you know, Mala Femmina. Yeah. Mala Femmina is a, you know, that's a, that's a real Italian song. But anyway... Yeah, right. It, again, the association with Italians names that you know ended vowels. You know, yeah, with the mob, but it, it isn't. It isn't necessarily an untrue association. It's not completely <laughs> untrue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, or yeah, or, or then, uh, and then the other part of the question being, let's say, "Mala Femina" was a true Italian song. Uh, Mambo Italiano was not a true Italian song, and you know, oh, right. yeah. uh, that's Amore was not really an Italian song, right? But there were others that were on that collection and that were popular songs that were either fully sung in Italian or originally written in Italian, but then sung in English. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, no question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'll, I'll be down to get you in a taxi, honey. Better be ready about half past eight. And then uh, Lou Monti from North Jersey did a version in 57. He said, I'm going to come and pick you up with four donkeys tomorrow at 8.30. <laughs> he was a real spender. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so uh, I'm going to extend this a little bit because there's there are several other things that I could get to here. But there was one I really wanted to talk a little bit more about because I felt this was something we ran out of time for in our last uh, two hours. And that <laughs> is and that is we've talked about uh, your the career development and the things you've uh, recorded and, you know, whether it was Blame It On My Youth, the, the, the album of standards or the singles, the rock and roll and pop singles that you did. And then even the that even extended into the early 70s when you did things like, um, you know, I'll be there and heading for New York City and all those, sure. you know, early mid 70s. Uh, but and then we talked about Lovey Dove and I'm kind of looking at my, you know, at, at my list here. But I wanted to ask, I guess, three or four things. One is of the singles that you recorded from late 50s to early 70s, are there a couple handful that are your favorite? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, I have asked a raindrop and a twinkling star to tell me where my love is. There you go. Tell me where you are. That's one of my favorites. A, a number of others. I remember that one. Yeah. And Tony Luisi had a lot to do with him, Tony and his brother John, in terms of, of writing and arranging. Uh, yeah, I Want to Be Lonely. That was that was 66 with Jerry Ross. Uh, Jerry Ross produced that. Now, Jerry Ross was a local Philadelphia producer who was probably most famous for uh, producing the Bobby Hebb song, uh, Sunny, Yesterday My Heart. Mm. So, but anyway, Great. yeah, there are a number of favorites. And I mean, I can't recall them like off the top of my head without like listening to them. And there are so many. Sure, sure. You to, did uh, so many. Yeah. Thanks to Julie's, uh, Julie's compilation that she did. She's, there are six six uh, CDs out there. 
That's right. And uh, as always, I include links with these interviews, everybody out there. And mm -hmm. uh, I actually haven't discussed which links we're including here because this is a follow-up. And so there's some info that, that we want to go over, but I think including a link to those albums on Bandcamp, let's say, would be a good start. Okay. So anybody who's curious about all the music we're talking about, you can hear that on uh, on Nikki's Bandcamp page. Um, if you got a few days you want to lose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you should. Uh, and so then you did an album in the mid-70s, 76, that was your name, is an eponymous album that was all of you, all your music. It was 10 originals. I remember some of those recording sessions uh, even. Uh, and I guess the question here is, two questions, what compelled you to release an album of originals? And were there, how much more material did you have that wasn't on that album? Well, well thanks to uh, these wonderful people, Joyce and Axel Schultz, uh, became fans back in 73. <clears throat> That's when I met them and we we became part of their family. We used to go to their place and mm -hmm. Schultz kid. Uh, it was just a wonderful, two, two wonderful people. May they both rest in peace, but they believed in me very much. And uh, they had financed a record heading for New York City. Uh, that's another story. Didn't, didn't, it wasn't a hit or anything, but the money they got back from their tax taxes, they took that money and invested in me to, to go to, to Sound Plus in Philly, Tony, Tony Luisi, who did the arrangements for the 10 songs in that eponymous Nicky DiMatteo album. And there's... Well, we'll get to that. But, but as far know, as that era, were, were there other yeah. songs that you had written that didn't make it on the album? I, I really can't remember what other songs might have uh, might have been included in that album. I just, you know, I didn't write anywhere near anywhere near the catalog that you have going for you. You know, I'm not sure how many songs I've written, but I am a sight older. You know, <laughs> was there a song called "Thank Goodness It's Friday" or something like that? Oh my gracious, yeah, that's a song I've always remembered. Yeah, I think that was yours, right? It was. It was, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't quite remember how it goes, but you're right. TGIF. And the San Francisco yeah. song. Uh, I, now, Julie and I, she, she took me to San Francisco on one of her prizes or something, and and I wrote a song called I forgot what the name of it was. It had to do with San Francisco. That was when, when. When was that? I'm thinking uh, the late the late seventies, early eighties, no, no, possibly. No. I wasn't. Really? I wasn't contesting until Well, if it was a contest, and it yeah. wasn't a contest. We just decided to go, I think. Yeah. Oh. oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. And that's, yeah, I've always wondered that because I know that a lot of artists, um, most artists will have much, some more material than ends up on an album. No, of course, you know that. And I know that you didn't really record any others, but I wondered if you had actually written a, a bunch of others and just chose those 10 or something. Yeah. I, I'm not sure how the choices were made, but. Yeah, yeah. Totally and again, that's that's on Bandcamp too, everyone. So please listen to that. And then that, uh, and I know you did some things in the interim there between, you know, let's say '76 and uh, and the early '90s. Were there recordings? You did a couple of recordings there, or no? I can't recall any. I shoved those four country songs I wrote. 
Well, now, so then that gets to that. So then you put out a country EP called Countrified City Boy. Countrified City Boy, right. That was um, in the early 90s, right? I believe so. Yeah, and those were all those were all original country songs. Yes, yes. Countryfied City Boy. <laughs> and what, what, so what motivated you to do that one? Well, I, I had written those songs uh, specifically concentrating on the country aspect of it you know and i'm i'm south philly doo-wop kid you know you're not supposed to like country but the countryfied city boy says oh well you know i do i i like country you know it, it does something to me and i appreciate what it means and the other song that well, would you kiss me one more time before you leave me uh, mm-hmm. uh my partner here julie the hungarian uh-huh. oh the hungarian by the way i was the only one in a family of 10 to marry a non-Italian. You rebel. <laughs> I guess I was. Mm. But anyway, so she won a trip to New York, Paul Newman's contest, from which she got $10,000 and she had to give it to charity. But she was going to New York and I couldn't go with her. I was working. So she took Joyce Schultz to New York. And before she left, I said, kiss me one more time before you leave me. So I wrote the song and the people <laughs> who heard the song just kind of assumed that there, there was a rift in in our relationship that caused me oh, to write a song like that. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, you know yourself as a writer, you you get an idea to write a song, and it's it's a whole different interpretation from the people who hear it, which is great. That's, yeah, they make it fun, personal yeah. for them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But yeah, I I don't know. There's so many possibilities out there. Well, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, this this is perfect. We we've, we've covered quite a lot. I'm sure there were things that I would love to get into yeah, more that we missed. <laughs> you know, uh, there were a couple of things that Jim threw up here that he wanted to talk about, which I think are more kind of, uh, you know, aside, uh, which we can we can discuss and and or we discussed them, you know, previously. But right. otherwise, I you know I think that this I you know I feel better about this because I knew. I didn't know what we'd get into doing an interview. And I, and I knew about halfway through our last interview that we would never get to everything. And we, <laughs> we did that kind of, kind of like artificial partition where we said, okay, the second interview is going to be anything from 1970 and beyond. But wow. we didn't really get into the country music and stuff like that. And I just wanted to kind of paint a you know, uh, more complete picture of all of the things that you've done. And to get a little deeper into some of the music issues and 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 things in your history, and I, you know, I I think that we were able to do that. So, thank you for all of the time that you've spent here today. Thank you, thank you for being who you are and and what you're accomplishing here. God bless you, buddy. Well, thank you, thank you, and thank you to you everybody out there. Say that again. You and Catherine. Oh, and yes, that's and right, that's right. That was. I'm going to I'm going to get let you in on a little behind the scenes in the uh, industry here. That'll be the first interview of this season that hopefully you've already seen is with Catherine and me. I'm not going to say any more uh, about it unless you've seen it. Just go see it and you'll see what I mean. I'm releasing this. I'm recording this one in in advance of that, but releasing this one as the second one of the season. Uh, So just a little just a little fun thing some things times things are not recorded in order just so you know <laughs> uh, but as always thank you everybody 
for for uh, watching. If you are on Patreon, thank you very much. Uh, if you are listening on any of the podcast platforms, thank you for listening. Thank you for reading all the text and clicking all the links and listening to more music and sharing, especially sharing and reposting and in any way, bringing more people into the family. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your attention and your ears. And uh, until uh, next interview, this is Nick DiMatteo and Nicky DiMatteo saying goodbye. Love you, buddy. Love you too. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.